0: 90.7 KPFK Los Angeles
1: to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today marks the one-year anniversary of a military coup in Myanmar. Thousands have been killed. And to mark the anniversary, a silent protest strike is underway across Myanmar. And Myanmar-based labor unions have called for the fashion industry to stop doing business there. Our guest is Kiang Tsar-Ung, President of of the Industrial Workers Federation of Myanmar, an executive committee member of the Confederation of Trade Unions, Myanmar, and a member of the Myanmar Labor Alliance. And the latest on the Armand, Aubrey Case. Our guest is Nana Jumphy, attorney, consultant, educator, activist, the executive director of Black Alliance for Just Immigration, and president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers. Also, the longest political prisoner in the United States, Rochelle McGee. There are now calls for his freedom. Our guest is Virginia Harris, a member of the Coalition to Free
2: For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfonderry. The New York Times reports that six weeks after Election Day, then-President Trump directed personal attorney Rudy Giuliani to ask the Department of Homeland Security if it could seize voting machines in key swing states. The Times says Giuliani complied. He reportedly called the department's acting deputy secretary, who said he lacked the authority to do as Trump wished. Other reports have said Trump or his advisors raised the of the Defense Department or the Justice Department seizing voting machines. Ultimately, none of the high-level officials approached by Trump advisors agreed to do it. But the new reports show the widespread extent of the efforts to subvert the election by seizing ballots, a never-before-seen occurrence. Over the weekend, Trump told a Texas rally that if he's reelected in 2024, he might pardon the January 6th Capitol insurrectionists. Long-serving Vermont Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy said he watched Trump's Texas comments with horror and disbelief. Speaking on the Senate floor, Leahy vowed that Republicans and Democrats would return to the belief that this is a nation based on the rule of law.
3: Disagree if we want, disagree at the ballot box, but follow the law and stop giving the impression to the rest of the world that we're some kind of a a pending dictatorship where the law and the Constitution are set aside to the whim of whomever is elected.
2: At least six historically black universities in five states and the District of Columbia have responded to bomb threats made in a single day with many of them locking down their campuses for a time. No explosive devices were found. Officials reported threats at Howard University in Washington, D.C., and colleges and universities in Georgia, Maryland, Louisiana, Florida, and Delaware. The FBI and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives are investigating. Lawmakers have asked for a briefing. Pfizer and BioNTech may ask the Food and Drug Administration as early as today for emergency use authorization for a vaccine for children six months to five years of age. Approval could mean the vaccine for young children would be available as soon as the end of this month. Diplomacy and preparations for war, both on display in the crisis over Ukraine. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov are expected to speak by phone today, a day after the two nations' ambassadors exchanged sharp words at the U.N. Security Council. Ukraine's president, meantime, signed a decree expanding the country's army by 100,000 troops, bringing the total number to 350,000 in the next three years and raising soldiers' wages. Volodymyr Zelensky, who in recent days sought to calm the nation in the wake of fears of an imminent invasion, declared that he signed the decree to further the cause of peace. Supporters of 77-year-old imprisoned Native American activist Leonard Peltier are urging his hospitalization after he tested positive for the coronavirus. His lawyer says he's feeling poorly. Peltier is one of this country's longest-serving political prisoners, convicted of killing two FBI agents on South Dakota's Pine Ridge Reservation in 1975. He long has maintained his innocence. Max Pringle reports.
0: Peltier recently tested positive in federal prison for COVID and, at age 77, has underlying health conditions. Jean Roach is co-director of the Leonard Peltier Defense Committee. She told a press conference Monday in Tampa, Florida, that the Federal Bureau of Prisons has denied Peltier proper care. We want Leonard in a hospital immediately. He has an aortic aneurysm. I mean, he's very high risk. He's a diabetic. Why does he have to be treated like a less-than-human? Democratic Senator Brian Schatz, who chairs the Senate Indian Affairs Committee, has called on President Biden to commute Peltier's sentence, as has James H. Reynolds, the former prosecutor, at Peltier's trial. I'm Max Pringle.
2: A bill that would have created the nation's only universal health care system has died in the California Assembly without a vote. The bill had to pass by midnight to have a chance at becoming law this year. But its author, San Jose Democratic Assemblymember Ash Kalra, said the measure did not have enough support to pass and decided to pull the legislation before it came up for a vote. The California Nurses Association condemned Kalra's decision, saying it was outraged that he chose to quote, just give up on patients across the state. The nurses' union said that Calra chose to provide cover for those who would have been forced to go on the record about where they stand on guaranteed health care for all people in the state. Kalra appeared to indicate he would try again next year. I'm Eileen Alfonderry for Pacifica Radio.
1: This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are going to start our show today with an update on the Amanda Arbery case. U.S. District Judge Lisa Wood has rejected a plea deal that would have averted a hate crimes trial for Travis McMichael, one of the three white men convicted of killing 25-year-old black man Armand Aubrey on January 7th, 2022. Armand Aubrey, who was on a jog, was chased down the streets of a predominantly white neighborhood in Satilla Shores, Georgia by Travis and Greg McMichael, who are father and son in their pickup truck, while William Bryant joined in a separate car and videotaped the chase that ended in Aubrey's fatal gun-down. Then Travis McMichael shot Aubrey three times at close range. The Department of Justice charged the three defendants in the hate crimes trial with violating Aubrey's rights, attempted kidnapping, and the use of dangerous weapons because of his race. They pleaded not guilty to the charges last year. During their trial in November, On November 24, 2021, however, the jury reached a verdict after 12 hours of deliberation spanning over two days, and the three men were found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Now, this story with this plea deal was submitted by Travis McMichael's defense included a provision that would have enabled both Travis and his father, Greg McMichael, to spend the first 30 years of their life sentences in federal prison rather than state prison where conditions are tougher. Armand Aubrey's parents, Marcus Arbery and Wander Cooper-Jones, responded with outrage. They spoke at Monday's hearing and asked the judge to reject this plea and express their disapproval of the proposed plea agreement. In particular, the provision that could have allowed the McMichaels to spend the first three decades of their life sentences in federal prison. They said Amman didn't get the option of a plea. They killed my son because he's a black man. I'm asking on behalf of his family, on behalf of his memory, and on behalf of fairness that you do not grant this plea, Wanda Cooper Jones said at the hearing. Now, federal deals would not affect the state murder convictions in Aubrey's case. We'll see how all of this goes, how all of this plays out. There is now the hate crimes section of this case and jury selection for that will begin on February 2nd, 2022. Let's go now to a clip from Fox 5 Atlanta on the Aubrey case. Breaking late this afternoon, a federal judge rejected a plea deal for Travis McMichael, the 36-year-old man convicted on state charges of killing Ahmaud Arbery in 2020. Arbery's
0: mother's outraged. A plea deal was even on the table and made her concerns clear in federal court today. Fox News Portia Bruner is at the live desk with more on what this means for the federal hate c- crimes trial that's scheduled to begin a week from today. Portia?
4: Yeah, that ruling by the federal judge came down around 3.30 this afternoon. U.S. District Judge Lisa Wood said she was not comfortable accepting the terms of the plea agreement after hearing objections from several members of Ahmaud Arbery's family. Now, earlier this afternoon, Wanda Cooper Jones, his mother, appealed to the judge, saying the option to serve time in federal prison instead of state prison where they were sentenced, gave the McMichaels, quote, one last chance to spit in my face after murdering my son. That's what she said in court. Now, Arbery's family attorney, Lee Merritt, says the feds thought it was more important to get a confession from Gregory and Travis McMichael. But the only way they could get that confession was to make an offer that they spend their first 30 years of their life sentence in federal prison instead of state prison. The Arbery's family said a confession at this point is absolutely meaningless and that the more palatable conditions of federal prison is just not something they felt they deserved. She said that they didn't deserve better accommodations after the way they cornered Arbery in a pickup truck and shot him dead in broad daylight in 2020. Here's what she said hours before that judge made the ruling late this afternoon. I told them very, very adamantly that I wanted them to, to go to state prison and do their time that Judge Wansley gave them back back in January, on the 7th of January. And then they, I got up this morning and found out that they had accepted this, this ridiculous plea. Very disrespectful. Now, the judge did not rule on 64-year-old Gregory McMichaels' plea deal. Instead, she gave the McMichaels and their attorneys until Friday to choose whether they want to withdraw their guilty pleas and go to trial. Instead, if the McMichaels decide not to plead guilty, their federal hate crime trial will begin on Monday, where Travis McMichaels' various social media posts disparaging black people are likely to be entered into evidence. At the live desk, Portia Bruner, Fox 5 News.
1: All righty. So now I'd like to welcome our guest, Nana Jumpy, known to our many of our listeners, attorney, consultant, educator, activist, executive director of Black Lives for Just Immigration. And in, for this particular segment, we're talking to her as president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers. She's a human and civil rights attorney, advocate for over two decades. She also has guest hosted this show, A, Sir, a Sojourner Truth, and has been on the KPFK airwaves. She's known affectionately as the People's Attorney. Nana, welcome back.
5: Thank you. I tried to fill those big shoes, Margaret. It was paltry, but I made an effort. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, you do very very uh, well, Nana. I I appreciate you uh, pitching in there. But um, Okay, so the plea deal was rejected. Uh, Yesterday when we set this story up, we were worried. We didn't know what was going to happen. The family, of course, outraged. Um, Nana, your view on uh, the reasoning that was given for this plea deal and just the message that even the deal sent um, to uh, not only the family, but uh, those of us of African descent and those who are for justice across the country, Nana Jumpy.
5: So here's what I think is really important for us to think about. The pro- This is in the federal case. So the prosecutors in the federal case is the DOJ. This is the federal court system, right? This is not the state court system. And so this is a system, as we sit here in Black History Month, uh, where we're going to be told that um, this administration and this government, you know, just loves black people and so respects black people. And we see, however, what really is happening. And what's really happening is the continued disrespect I think that, uh, you know, Ms. Cooper Jones said it the best, Um, disrespect of black people and of our lives. When you have a federal attorney, right, that is saying, which is a prosecutor, that it makes more sense to them to hear a confession, that that's the big important piece. And, in fact, that was said in open court. It's like, hey, Travis McMichael is admitting in front of the world that he did this to Ahmad Aubrey because he's black. What is that? We already knew that. We knew that before the trial in the state court. That's not a gift. And what does he get in exchange? as if that is so precious? He gets to have thirty years of his sentence sent to a completely different prison system that, you know, i'm not I wouldn't want to go to federal prison, so I'm not saying it's a walk in the park, but certainly, there, you can be sent anywhere, and we can imagine that he could be sent somewhere where those prison conditions are going to be much better than what we know are the abysmal prison conditions in the state of Georgia. And so, it, yes, it's an outrage. Yes, it's a disrespect. But it also is reflective of how even this administration um, thinks about black people Uh, and thinks about black lives
1: the reason that uh, the Department of Justice gave because they look pretty bad I mean, here you had Armand's mother uh, saying she felt betrayed, I'm not quite sure um, uh, how much was discussed with her ahead of time, but they're saying well, we wanted a guilty plea out of these guys, so we felt that we had to offer them something Uh, what do you think of that?
5: Go to work. You get
2: paid in order to do trial.
5: <laughs> Go to work. It's like, well, we wanted to get out of work. What are you talking about? Follow the evidence in the state trial. We know full well what that evidence is and what that federal jury is going to hear. They're not going to hear something less, Margaret. And so they're going to hear, they're going to see in video the murder of our brother, our sibling, Ahmad Aubrey at the hands of these people, where they're going to hear their words, they're going to see their tweets, you know, they're going to, all of that is going to be laid bare. And so this is just, it's, just, it's disgusting, really. It's like, this is what you do, the courthouses are open, this is a job that you get, get they take that job, you prosecute black people with far less, you happily prosecute them, How prosecute us, with far less. Go ahead, take, do your job. And um, put these these men on trial and let the jury make its decision. You know, again, as I say this, I've said this on the show before. I'm an abolitionist. I feel about prisons and jails the same as I feel about the death penalty. I wish none of it existed. However, if we're going to have a system that exists, it certainly cannot be left to be a system in which whiteness, white comfort, um, you know, white discomfort is placed above the justice for black people. And so when they say that, oh, this confession, we're going to get them to plead, It's like, yeah, if you don't get them to plead, then you do what you normally do, which is to take the people to trial. And I was pleased that if we're going to have this system, that the court at least saw through all of this, And said, nah, we're going to trial February 7th, unless you all, you know, decide that you want to continue with these guilty pleas. But you're not going to get this cake and ice cream with it.
1: So, (laughs) I I couldn't agree more, but uh, Nana, just, you know, what is the importance, explain to our audience the importance, I mean, they were found guilty in state court. What is the significance of this now federal case on, on hate crimes? Nana.
5: So when we, you know, the the hate crimes aspect of it is the way in which this system you know, is attempting to bring some racial justice to the issue, right? And so that it's not just the recognition of this as something that is a violation and sort of your, and I hate to say it this way, but garden variety violation, right? But when you add the hate crime, you're acknowledging anti-blackness was a part of this crime, was the basis, the foundation. You're acknowledging that racism was the foundation. In a uh, culture that wants to act as if we are, you know, post-racist and et cetera, et cetera, even as we see um, folks bringing the Confederate flag to their January 6th insurrection, right, that there's this effort to try to limit it to people that maybe wear a certain uniform um that identifies them as a hate group or are waving certain flags that identify them as hate groups and so what the hate crime part is what adds the recognition that this is something that was done based upon racial animus and so it is important that uh, you know this this go through in this way with the hate crime part attached to it often there's an effort to get rid of that and to you know to dismiss the hate crime part in an effort to um, get that plea that they so desire, I think it's really important for those who, and especially for Ahmad Aubrey's family, his supporters, his friends, and those who want this to be recognized as a hate crime, that the hate crimes stay in.
1: On that note, we are going to have to leave it there. Uh, Nana Jumphy. but as per usual, really glad uh, that you were able to join us. I know uh, how precious your time is, how busy you are. Thank you so very much for your work and for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me. Margaret. Always, always, always glad to be
1: here. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and we are now going to turn our attention to what's happening in Myanmar. Today marks the one year anniversary following a military coup in Myanmar. The government of uh, Suu Kyi was overthrown and she was imprisoned. She's facing as many as 173 years in prison. In Myanmar, the military had held power since 1962 when a coup took place. In 2010, uh, Suu Kyi was released from house arrest and an election was held in 2015. Uh, But meanwhile, the Rohingya people, uh, brought to light discrimination and repression that they faced in Myanmar, and and many of them became international refugees. So there were internal tensions. Nevertheless, the population of Myanmar today overwhelmingly opposed the military coup against the Suu Kyi government. Now, Reuters reports that since the coup on February first, 2021, 1,500 people have been killed, and 11,838 have been arrested. Uh, We can't confirm those numbers. We're hearing that the numbers are likely greater than those. Also, diplomatic efforts have failed, and people have taken matters into their own hands and resisting as they can. They accuse the military junta of murder and torture, as well as environmental destruction. Ethnic and other communities, including the ethnic Karen community, are under brutal attack there. The United States and the UK have slapped sanctions on the military government, and several multinational corporations have also stopped doing business in Myanmar. And now, major trade unions have called for fashion brands to stop doing business in Myanmar. This call is gaining traction under the banner, Myanmar Military Never in Fashion, No Sweat, and the Global Women's Strike UK organized a letter supporting the call from Myanmar-based labor unions. That letter has now been signed by over 150 organizations, from community-based organizations to labor unions large and small, including the large and powerful AFL-CIO in the United States, and local unions such as Local 132, representing workers at Southern California gas company. Now, yesterday, President Biden weighed in. He accused the military junta in Myanmar of, quote, unspeakable violence against civilians including children, end of quote. And according to the New York Times, he also spoke out against the regime's denial of humanitarian access to millions who need life-saving aid. But today, in protest, the streets in several key cities in Myanmar are quiet in response to protesters' call for a silent strike to protest deteriorating conditions and repression by the military junta. Uh, Let's go now to some clips that we put together from Al Jazeera, CNN, and Reuters about the situation in Myanmar.
4: Hi, I'm Femi okay You're watching The Stream. On today's episode, we mark one year of military war in Myanmar. On February the 1st, 2021, the army seized control, claiming that the election won by the National League for Democracy was fraudulent. Ali Fowl, a journalist, was in Myanmar a year ago today. The day of the coup
0: began for me with a lot of confusion. I was mostly trying to find out what had actually happened, trying to find out who had been detained. And very early on in the day, the internet and the phone signal was cut off and that confusion started to be replaced by fear of who had been detained, what was coming next. And looking back on it a year later, it's just incredibly depressing. Myanmar still had a lot of issues, but so much progress disappeared in the blink of an eye. And these politicians, these activists, people that I know personally, are still in prison. There's still, many of my friends are still in hiding. Uh, The people are still missing. We don't even know where they are and the situation is still dire.
4: This just into CNN, more than 30 people, including women and children, we are learning have been massacred in Myanmar. This is according to the human rights group, Save the Children. According to the group, government troops arrested villagers and travelers before killing some of them and then setting both their bodies and their belongings on fire. Pictures from the scene show burned out cars and rubble. Save the Children says two of their staff members who were traveling home for the holidays are now missing and they have received confirmation their car was among the burning remains.
0: (laughs)
6: So
1: yo all righty those are people in miramar on the street today i would now like to welcome our guest. uh king Zar Ang, president of the Industrial Workers Federation of Myanmar, an executive committee member of the Confederation of Trade Union Myanmar, and a member of the Myanmar Labor Alliance. Uh, Kang, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm not quite sure what you can tell us about what is happening uh, on the street across the nation, but the reports we're getting uh, that things are pretty quiet there. So there seemed to be a response uh, to this call for a silent protest today, although we're hearing in at least one city, there were some people who came out in support, of course, of the military junta. This is to be expected. Any updates that you can give us before we can uh, talk about the specific call in relation to the garment workers in the garment industry, Kang?
6: First of all, I, I would like to say that today we call for the silence strike. It was successful, uh, even though even uh, the military regime they forced the shops to open, they forced the non-CDM workers to came out on the street. But uh, we, uh, the, the silence strike was uh, successfully implemented. So that that show uh, our people stay they, uh, they doing. Against a coup, and uh, regarding with the situation in the industry, the garment industry, what is happening to the workers? So, according to the ILO Employment and Rep- Rapid Assessment, which uh, released uh, three days ago, and two hundred twenty thousand workers are losing job in this uh, industry. So, but uh, actually, we I- IWFM estimate that more than three hundred fifty workers. In the garments that are losing jobs because now the manufacturers closing on the ground. So according to Myanmar Manufacturer Association, Myanmar Garment Manufacturer Association, they in interviewed the Secretary General said that 140 factories closed temporarily, and 54 factories closed permanently, and 80 factories did lay off. So that, in the list of the employment, the workers who were working in the 140 factories, which they closed temporarily, are not included. So we estimate that the workers working in that one hundred forty factory is more than one hundred thousand workers. So that those workers, they are hundred or thousand of workers, they are not in the list of the employment and also they are losing jobs and they are not getting salary. They are not getting wage because employers they agree not to pay for the temporary for uh, to the workers. They agree not to pay temporary closure to the workers. That, that's why those workers, most, mostly women workers, they are... They, they are facing a very difficult situation. Of course we understand under the military rule, under the military rule, the people were suffer. But uh, in the industry zone, there are stays the Western brands producing in Myanmar. But those brands are turning into blind eyes, even though they know the workers are not women workers are not getting paid for the Dumborali Grosha. And also um and uh, Regarding with the working condition, now uh, the at the factory level, the trade unions are under oppress because the 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 employer don't want the union, so they give uh, the trade union contact number and information to the military. So trade unions members, uh, leaders from the factory level to the uh, the national level, many of them are into hiding. So, because of this uh, situation, the no no trade unions can protect the worker rights, and also the there is no rule or law in the country. That is why working conditions of the workers are getting worse day by day. So now workers are forced to work overtime getting uh, only minimum wage, which is around about the two, uh, two, two euro. And uh, now security workers pay more for the social security fee, but they are not getting their benefit. And uh, men, pregnant women, they, they have a quit job now. So that uh, that is the situation in the, uh, the SADA. Thank you. Okay.
0: Be right back with more Sojourner Truth right here on KPFK, Los Angeles.
1: And that song by one of my faves, uh, Bob Marley, again, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety and you can subscribe to a free podcast. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook and our handle on Instagram at so True Radio. You can also check out our website at SoTrueRadio.org. And we are worldwide and nationwide on SoundCloud. And today I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in 29 Palms, California. And internationally, I would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Spain. We are catching up today on what is happening in Myanmar. Today marks the one year anniversary following a military coup there. There's a silent protest that is going on and labor unions, several labor unions with the support of 150 organizations from community based organizations to labor unions internationally are supporting their call where they're asking the fashion industry to stop doing business in Myanmar. We are now going to go wrap up our show um, and uh, welcome our guests to talk about what is happening with Rochelle Cinque McGee. Uh, he is the longest held political prisoner in the United States. He was arrested in 1963 over a $10 drug trade that his supporters say um, were trumped up charges. On August 7th, here's some of the history, 1970, Rochelle McGee was wounded in a shootout in a Marin County, California courthouse where prison guards killed Jonathan Jackson, James McLean, and William Christmas. This was part of an effort. This happened uh, because Black Panther Jonathan Jackson, um, he was trying to free the Soleil-Dad brothers who were charged earlier with the murder of a prison guard. Now, Michelle McGee, who was in the courthouse to give testimony, used the occasion uh, to try to free himself. The shootout occurred when Jonathan Jackson, the brother of Black Panther Field Marshal George Jackson, tried to take charge of the courtroom where the trial was being held. George Jackson was one of those charged with the February 16th, 1970 murder of the prison guard. The Soledad brothers' case was a cause celeb taken up nationally and internationally. Famously, Angela Davis was arrested and charged with assisting um, and attempting to allow the Soledad brothers to escape. But after a national and international campaign to free her, she was found not guilty. Today, at 81 years old, Rochelle Cinque McGee remains in prison, and his supporters are petitioning Governor Newsom of California to free him. I would like to welcome our guest, Virginia Harris, who is a member of the Coalition to Free Rochelle McGee and a longtime community activist. Virginia, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me, Margaret. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk
1: about the case. Likely, a lot of our listeners may know nothing about uh, Rochelle McGee, even about that period of time. Um, you know, around the early 70s, uh, when the militant black movement uh, was so uh, very strong. So, uh, I first of all, any comments on that summary that I that I gave about what? actually happened and perhaps you could just uh, say you know uh, just verify that I was correct anything that you wanted to add or correct in that intro
3: right you actually gave a great summary of uh, the case and uh, what Jonathan Jackson was attempting to do was release the Soleddad Brothers and get to a radio station to be able to express over the radio station, the demands to not only free the Soledad brothers, but other political prisoners, particularly his brother George Jackson. Uh, however, as you stated, as they were leaving the courthouse armed, because Johnson Jackson did bring gun weapons to the courthouse in this effort. Uh, as they were leaving the courthouse, the prison guards and the local police opened fire on them. Uh, and as you said, uh, Johnson Jackson was killed. William Christmas and John McClain were killed. Also, the judge who had been taken as hostage was killed. Uh, Rochelle McGee was severely wounded, as was the district attorney. And as a result of that uh, shootout, Rochelle McGee was given another kidnapping charge uh, to go along with the kidnapping charge that stemmed from the $10 marijuana case uh, to run concurrently. So he has been imprisoned since 1973 on those concurrent charges. Angela Davis was indeed the co-defendant with him. She was originally charged with providing the weapons for that uh, the uh, takeover of the courthouse because her name was associated with the purchase of those weapons. She was, uh, as you said, her, or her, well, the case itself, re, uh, obtained such wide notoriety and worldwide support that she was ultimately Acquitted of all the charges. Ironically, Rochelle had the same exact charges that she did, and he was not released from his case, his charges. So he has remained in prison. He has been denied parole for the last 40 years, and his last parole denial was in July of 2021. He will not be available or eligible for parole again until 2024.
1: Right. And what is his uh, condition now? We know, uh, first of all, uh, about what he has been doing in, in, in prison because he, like Mamia Abu-Jamal, and so many others, became jailhouse lawyers and are really helping others uh, who, are, who are in prison. Tell us, how is he doing um, a bit about the work that he tries to do on the inside? I mean, he changed his name. Um, to Cinque in honor of um, Cinque who uh, took over the slave ship uh, Amistad. Uh, So clearly he is trying to make some political um, lessons here to share with all of us, including his fellow prisoners, with um, not only taking on that name, but what it is he's trying to do, do while on the inside.
3: He has attempted to help people with cases that they have had, but he is his health is deteriorating, however, and he is currently using a walker or a cane to walk around. We're concerned that we'll contract COVID-19, and he is 82 years old now. He won't be eligible for parole. For three more years, he'll be 85 years old. We know that the lifespan of people of color, particularly black men, is not even is 75 years old. So he's been fortunate to have lived as long as he has, even while he's been incarcerated. But we are concerned that his health is failing and that he will not even be able to uh, be released before he succumbs to his either his health
1: issues or COVID-19. Right, yeah. And uh, there's so many um, elders who were um, political prisoners, but also other prisoners, and there's a lot of concern uh, for them. Um, we uh, certainly know of uh, the, the, the case of uh, Russell Maroon Schultz in Pennsylvania, who finally, finally, finally uh, won uh, being able to be release, as his health was deteriorating, he was basically uh, losing his life, and uh, shortly after he came out, he, uh, he passed away. Um, so he didn't really get uh, much of a, a taste of, of freedom. Um, so tell us about the committee um, to uh, free Rochelle McGee, and uh, what is it uh, that you're asking people to do, and what you all have done thus far?
3: The Coalition to Free Rochelle McGee, and we are a small group of people who are determined to see Rochelle McGee free outside of the prison gate. We have had uh, press conferences. We, our recent, most recent press conference was held on December 3rd in front of the CNN offices in Los Angeles. We used that site to, to draw attention to the fact that None of the national news media are covering the case at all, and that if it wasn't for organizations or uh, news outlets like Sir Jonathan and KTFK and other uh, political left-wing news outlets, his case wouldn't be heard at all. You did say, uh, I think when you started, that he is not that well-known, and he isn't that well-known, which is surprising because his case was attached, or because Angela Davis was his co-defendant, I would think that his name would be worldwide, but it is not. He is not that well-known. So we're trying to get his name out. We're also trying to bombard Governor Gavin Newsom's office with telephone calls, So we are urging people to call Governor Newsom's office. Uh, The number to call Governor Newsom is area code 916-445-2841, and you can either leave a message or... Hold on the line, and we would urge people to hold on the line so that they can speak directly to a person. We want as many people, we want hundreds of calls to bombard Governor Newsom's office so that he knows that Michelle has lots of support on the outside, people urging for his relief. We're also asking people to sign a petition. We currently have over 32,000 signatures on the petition. If you go to our website, which is you will find there an access or a link to the petition and also a link to Governor Newsom's office where you can even send a letter to the office which we are also encouraging people to do but we want phone calls to go in. Um, We are urging people to just bombard Governor Newsom's office with telephone calls so that he is clearly aware that uh, we are out here supporting uh, his release, uh, Richel McGee's release. We did have an opportunity to meet with some of Governor Newsom's legal staff, who gave us some direction as to how to approach it. And one thing that they stressed to us was that we need to get the case onto the governor's desk. So we are trying to do that by bombarding his office with calls from all the supporters
1: and mm-hmm. Rochelle, he has a parole uh, suitability hearing coming up soon, right? So um, where he might have the possibility of getting parole. So this is this is very very urgent uh, for people uh, to do. Uh, just tell us about that because he has been, as you said, been denied, hasn't been able to, to come out. So what um, are, are you hopeful in terms of of uh, July 2021 and And are you hoping to meet your goal of signatures before that time? And also for people like our listeners, people who are concerned about this, to be able to contact uh, the governor on this, Virginia.
3: Right. He was given three years to uh, be eligible again for parole, so that won't be uh, three years until 2024. So He'll be eligible again. So, But we don't want to wait that long. We want people to urge Governor Newsom to go now. He could be released on uh, the old age prisoners stipulation. He can be released because of COVID-19. He can be released because he has served more time than is usually given for kidnapping charges. So there are many reasons why he could be released, but we want him to be released to be able to spend some time with his family. He didn't murder anyone. He was involved in an effort to free the Soledad brothers. The people who murdered anyone that day were the police and the guards, the prison guards. He is being held because he is a former Black Panther Party member. He's being held because he participated in Jonathan Jackson's attempt to see the Soledad brothers, he's being held because he's been an, a jailhouse lawyer, helping people, helping us, uh, fellow inmates learn about their flight, helping them change their, uh, develop their political beliefs. Because he is a political person, he's being held in prison longer than he should have been held. And we're demanding his release based on all of those charges, all those counts.
1: Uh, Virginia, you sound a little as though there's a little echo. We want our our listeners to hear everything that you're saying. So if you are on speaker, perhaps you can just hold the phone up (laughs) the old fashioned way. And perhaps we will hold you, um, uh, you know, be able to hear you a little bit better. But, you know, you are saying, just as we're wrapping up here, that factually he is innocent. And I imagine there may be people who are saying, well, you know, he went to prison first off for back in 1963, Um, but explain to us what the heck happened there because it was a $10 drug trade and he got seven years to life for that. So even setting aside what happened in the courtroom when he was trying, as you put it, to gain his freedom and, you know, there's chaos in the courtroom. Somebody's trying to, you know, Jonathan Jackson is trying to control the the courtroom. Here's your chance to get out. And Rochelle McGee, after all the horrors he faced in in prison, was trying to get out and uh, was shot and injured at that time. But what about that first arrest in 1963? It does seem, a bit excessive to me anyway of seven years to life for a $10 drug trade Virginia
3: I don't know why I have the the feedback on the back I'm not on speaker I am on my uh, earbud. Answer
1: the question. Don't worry about the sound right now. So just on the point of 1963 and, um, the you know, a seven years to life. which seemed very excessive to me because I imagine people are listening and saying, well, after all, the guy's a criminal. Why shouldn't he get out? But 10 years to life, a $10 drug trade? Virginia. He,
3: uh, what happened was that his attorney pleaded him out. He did not even consult with Rochelle McGee. The attorney took the plea for him uh, and pleaded him out and betrayed him by taking that plea. Uh, He convinced, I believe he must have convinced Rochelle that it was the easier way to go, that he wouldn't have to do that much time, but he ended up pleading him, taking the seven-year-to-life charge for the marijuana. Uh, Actually, it it turned out they attached a kidnapping charge to that um, $10 marijuana charge because the person that the marijuana belonged to or that was being purchased from alleged that he had been kidnapped and that Michelle McGee and his cousin had been the kidnappers, although when the police arrested them, they did not have the keys to the car. The man who who owned the car had the keys to the car. Clearly, he wasn't kidnapped, but he was charged with kidnapping. And the kidnapping charge is what... Uh, was given the seven years to life, not the marijuana charge. But it was the attorney that treated him out. He still did not accept the plea
1: himself. Yeah, and uh, clearly this was before, long before Rodney King and people were videotaping stuff because, you know, um, what I'm, I'm reading is that as when the police arrested him, they beat him, that he had to be hospitalized for about three days. So, you know, what was that about? I mean... You know what I mean? I mean, these days, people have video cameras, etc. And you can capture this sort of thing. But uh, Virginia, you and I might remember when Rodney King was beat. And all of us knew that this kind of thing goes on all the time uh, in the black community. But it's just that the world found out about it because it was caught on video. But in the case of Rochelle McGee, that was not the case. We've got uh, just about uh, a minute and a half to two minutes, Virginia.
3: Right. It was not the case. They beat him because he stood up. He demanded to know why he was being arrested. Uh, he, he did not calm down or shut up as they ordered him to. And, you know, when, when, even when women do that, or when black men stand up against the police, the first thing that police are going to do is beat them down to the ground. So they did beat him to the point where he did have to be hospitalized. But it was because he was standing up for his rights, even during the arrest.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, uh, Virginia, on that note, uh, before we leave, just tell us again how people could uh, get in touch with the group that is working to uh, free um, Rochelle uh, McGee. And for other people, what should they do if they're concerned about this? Virginia.
3: For everyone who is concerned, we urge you to call Governor Gavin Newsom's office. The number is area code 916. Four four five two eight four one. And for general information about the campaign and to sign the petition that we have going, and also to get further information, please uh, go to Free.
1: On that note, we are going to have to leave it there. Um, Virginia Harris, thank you so very much for joining us. All righty. We would like to thank all of today's guests, Kang um, Zerung, also uh, Nana Jumphy. Uh, today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our engineer today, Gary Baca, our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the. Pacifica Radio Archives at one 800 735 or go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Um, you're going to stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman, Sojourner Truth. We'll be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for joining us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. And you all remembered. please stay safe.
4: No more
0: this is a public service announcement. According to Los Angeles County's website, community transmission of COVID-19 has increased in LA County. The risk for COVID-19 exposure and infection will continue until more people are vaccinated. It's important for everyone to help slow the spread of the virus by wearing a mask. Everyone, regardless of vaccination status, is required to wear a mask in all indoor public settings, public and private businesses in Los Angeles County, as well as on all forms of public transportation. Masks are required at outdoor events with over 10,000 attendees or where it's the policy of the business or venue. It's also strongly recommended that you wear a mask at smaller crowded outdoor events. When people wear a mask correctly, they protect others as well as themselves. For additional information, you can access LA County's Public Health website at publichealth.lacounty.gov. Thanks, and please stay healthy.